it's really hard to pin down exactly what professional wrestling is. It's a sport, but it's also a soap opera. It's live theater, it's stunt coordination. It's a series of flamboyant monologues. It's a TV drama while also being reality television. It's a meta performance only rivaled by The Muppet Show. Currently, it's one of the most socially progressive sports in terms of race and gender. Yet, historically, is an industry that has caused so much representative harm. It's extremely heteronormative, but also pretty homoerotic. It's queer-hating, it's queer-baiting, it's a competition, it's an industry, it's a business, it's sexist yet feminist. It's a choreographed dance in tights with people you love and hate for real or because someone's monologue convinced you to pretend for just about a minute. The entire form is a living contradiction of itself, but my god it's so good. To wrestling fans, wrestling is everything, and rightfully so, it's, it's hard to pin down pro wrestling's place in modern culture. It appears to be on the fringes of society, and yet nearly 10 hours of live shows are produced for major US television networks every week. WWE has the 7th largest YouTube channel in the world, that's out of all of the channels. And Dwayne Johnson is one of the most recognizable faces on the planet, more so than Jesus Christ himself, citation needed. So where does pro wrestling fit into all of this? Is it on the fringes of culture or is it in the mainstream? Is it a competitive sporting industry or is it purely entertainment? In this podcast series, together we aim to use media and cultural theory in order to figure out, once and for all, just exactly what this weird and wonderful thing is. Hello listener, my name is Matt Winter Watson and first and foremost I'd like to thank you for hitting play on this little podcast. Whether you're a massive pro wrestling fan like myself, or you're just interested in cultural theory, any form of media studies, or just pop culture in general. If you fall into one of the above, I reckon there's something in this podcast for you. The aim of this project is to explore all aspects of media and cultural theory, using professional wrestling to illustrate any and all examples. So why pro wrestling? Terrific question. It's my hypothesis that professional wrestling can be used to explain almost anything. It's such a nebulous genre of entertainment with one foot in and another foot out of reality that it links back to almost every aspect of modern living. So please do subscribe to this feed on whichever platform you're currently using either to join me in seeing if it's possible to explain most things through the lens of professional wrestling, or because you know it's not possible, I sound like an absolute madman, and you want to hear someone slowly descend into a theoretical mania in the recording studio in his basement. That's, that's what's going to happen here. In this first episode, we're going to cover the basics of cultural theory by asking, what does culture mean? What are the different types of culture? And throughout the episode, we'll be asking just where pro wrestling fits into culture as a whole. 
Also, I'm not an expert of any kind. I'm not involved in the professional wrestling industry. I'm just a stranger with a microphone and a degree in media studies that I'm trying to put to use. So therefore, if I say something that you want to cry absolute bollocks on, please do get in touch. And you can do that by going to wrestlingismedia at gmail.com. I'm a big fan of being corrected. I'm not, I'm not one of those people who's like, oh, don't, please don't correct me. I know everything. I don't know anything. I'm constantly learning. That's, that's kind of the whole point of this project. So please, if you think I'm talking bollocks, get in touch especially if you're involved in the world of professional wrestling, because I'd love to hear your takes on some of these theoretical concepts and how they analyze your chosen form of artistic expression. I think that's enough admin out of the way. Let's get on with today's discussion. See, I don't ask my audience what they want. I tell them what they want. I tell them what they want, and then they like it. As wrestling fans, we've all heard the following phrases. Outlaw mud show. Backyard redneck trash. A carnival clown with his trousers down, pissing hot foamy jets into the mouths of the unwashed masses. I made that last one up. Professional wrestling, to non-wrestling fans in particular, has this reputation of being a grotesque, over-the-top sideshow designed to fill the airwaves of sports channels when there's no one who's particularly good at hitting a ball into a hole, hitting a ball into a hole, or whatever sports are, I've never really understood. As Renee Paquette suggested in episode 9 of her podcast Oral Sessions, wrestling is the black sheep of entertainment. Other people have gone on record as saying that. I was just listening to that podcast episode the other day, and I think Paquette is an underrated mind in this business. And it can be argued that the sport wouldn't have survived the 2010s without her, but that's that's an essay for another time. For anyone who has ever been looked down upon for liking wrestling, there's definitely something to unpack here. If we can figure out what qualifies something as low culture, we can measure pro wrestling against these tenets and discover if wrestling even is low culture. And who knows, maybe by the end of this episode, we'll be able to condense it down into a short conclusion, one you can throw back at the next person who sneers at you for finding enjoyment in a form of fiction. But first, let's define some words and phrases that will help us along the way. What do we even mean when we say the word culture? It may seem odd to some to use the words wrestling and culture in the same sentence, but culture is simply a catch-all term for the social, intellectual, artistic, and spiritual achievements or expressions of a group of human beings. That's it. That's, That's all it is. Simply put, it's what we as humans put out into the world around us. Pro wrestling has been around in some form since the mid-19th century. Back when carnival barkers recruited local strongmen to fight each other for the entertainment of others. Much like putting on a play or attending a funfair, these fights were a way for Europeans in the 1800s to escape reality and be entertained for just a short while. This makes wrestling from its very origin a shared cultural expression. 
That's right, straight out of the gate, we can say that wrestling definitively is culture. We still need to find out exactly which branch of culture it stems from, but wrestling is undeniably culture. Take that, Dad! I'm talking about culture right now, and I'm doing it without wine and or cheese. Okay, it's time to level with you. Podcaster to listener, as someone who hit play on this podcast, I'm going to trust you with something. Low culture isn't really an acceptable term to use when talking about any product of culture. It's long been attributed to early classist cultural theorists, who used the term to hold down certain forms of culture, particularly folk culture, while elevating others. I just decided to make it the title of today's episode because it seemed slightly more clickbaity than the alternatives. And at least I'm being honest and upfront about it. It would only truly be clickbait if I didn't address why I'd given the episode this particular title, and I've just done that, so yeah, I'm off the hook. The more appropriate terms for aspects of our culture that are meant to engage large portions of our populace would be mass culture or pop culture. Pop being short for popular, and mass being short for Massachusetts, not really, that's not true, don't listen to that part. Mass and pop culture are the cultural products that are generally recognised by the populace as being the dominant outputs of a given moment in time. For example, the jury is still out on the 2020s, but without a shadow of a doubt we can say that the 2010s were culturally defined by superheroes. Comic books, graphic novels, and the superhero genre have all been around for decades, but it was only in the 2010s that they enjoyed their peak place in popular culture. So the superhero genre has always been culture, but it hasn't always been popular. Also as a side note, the bubble might have burst on the superhero genre, and it may never be as popular as it was in the 2010s. Sorry if you're hearing that for the first time as comic book fans, but if you're a wrestling fan, you can look back on years like 1985 and 1998 and, and you get it, right? Peaks and troughs, peaks and troughs. For centuries, people with power and status disparagingly declared certain aspects of culture as low. And as they were largely the only people who could read or write, the things they said and wrote became the cultural norm. During the Renaissance, those with status looked to classical arts, literature, and music in order to create a dominant, high culture that would best enlighten the masses. You have to think of these people as sort of like Damien Sandow circa 2013. They thought they were helping to educate and enlighten the general population, but in reality they came across as arrogant intellectuals sat in their ivory towers, yelling words like art and culture to citizens they forgot to teach how to read. I am doing this not to agitate you, but to save you from the doldrums of your own self-imposed inadequacies. You're welcome! They deemed low culture as anything less than their personal benchmark. Very little pieces of work of this era depicted the real struggles of the average working man. But people still desired distractions and diversions from the realities of what has always been a nightmarish existence. That's not new. In fact, it, it used to be worse, believe it or not. 
Out of this came silly folk songs, serious folk songs, crude wood carvings, and satirical performances against those in power. These are all examples of cultural artifacts that would have been deemed low culture at the time. That's why someone like William Shakespeare and the many plays he allegedly wrote are still talked about to this day. His plays were written for audiences from all social backgrounds. We'd get the historical, classical settings for the toffs in the balcony, but a few knob gags and rude insults for those in the cheap seats. Then, in the mid-19th century, you had the Industrial Revolution and the rise of the bourgeoisie, a particularly nasty group of people spurred on by the advent of a number of- Wait, wait, hold on a second. You, you just used the word. Who the fuck are the bourgeoisie? Okay, fair enough. Well, at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, we're talking pre-Luthez here, corporations began to rise up out of workers' guilds in order to meet the supply and demand of an increasingly capitalist society. According to Marxist theory, those who rose to great positions of power, wealth, and status during this time are known as the bourgeoisie. When professional wrestler Leah Van Dale, known to fans as Carmella, was promoting her new brand of wine in 2019, she used the phrase bougie on a budget as a slogan for her product. You may have even heard someone in your life or on social media describe a person, item, or activity as bougie. Well, that word is a lovely bit of slang short for bourgeoisie. So next time you accuse the WWE of being a fascist corporate monster, remember, they have a comrade in their ranks who likes to use Marxist terms in order to sell mass-produced wine on social- Okay, never mind. Carmella's not a communist. Basically, after the bourgeoisie acquired all of this wealth, power, and status over several decades, they all gathered together in various rooms and were like, damn, we like this system where the oppressed workers keep their noses to the literal grindstone to make us into millionaires. So the question is, how do we keep their noses down and our pockets fat? I know, culture, said one especially rotund piggy at the back of the Orwellian metaphor. Back to history. Increased literacy rates in the late 19th century meant a larger audience could now consume various aspects of culture. However, what's good for the goose isn't always what's best for the unwashed gandering masses. Instead of raising their workers to the enlightened status level they found themselves in, the bourgeoisie encouraged the production of cheap and quick thrills for the working classes. Or proletariat if you'd like another new word but working class if you, if you wouldn't. These came in the form of penny dreadfuls, disposable pulp fiction, as in fiction to be pulped after reading, not Samuel L. Jackson with a gun, the encouragement of pubs and bars on every street corner, and the introduction of competitive sport. Now, I want to make it very clear that none of these things are bad. Their modern equivalents are the latest Netflix reality show, whatever JK Rowling is writing next, probably something about wizards or women are specifically what she thinks they should be, the NFL, or your local axe throwing establishments, and potentially even pro wrestling. 
All are perfectly reasonable pleasures, distractions, and forms of escapism from this unequal society we inhabit. They aren't exactly complex texts that engage with ideas which would encourage you to question the nature of the way you're treated by those in positions of power, but they're a bit of fun, aren't they? We are but citizens in a Western society that encourages individualistic attitudes. We're powerless, for the most part. So let's watch Undertaker vs Shawn Michaels for the seventh time. Oh? WrestleMania 25 or 26? It doesn't matter, they're both great. But once again, as we saw in the Renaissance, the most popular and enduring cultural products managed to bridge the gap between the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. Sorry, working classes. Charles Dickens' novels and the work he inspired, such as A Muppet's Christmas Carol, are great examples of this. The bourgeoisie of the late 19th century even started to use the term popular culture for the things they themselves turned their noses up at. Sometimes literally, they had pointy noses. It's just a Tory thing, it's just a posh thing. They understood it kept their workers happy, but they didn't deem it official culture, a term they used in an attempt to label the things they thought should endure. Thankfully though, due to some increases in workers' rights throughout the early 20th century, the term official culture died out. And thanks to that, today we can enjoy the Muppets Christmas Carol every December the 24th, instead of St. Swithin's interpretive festive ballet performed by the class of Our Lady Emmanuel, or whatever posh people do. The 20th century saw even more advancements in technology if you can just about believe it. Especially after the Second World War, when TVs, mass media, and eventually the internet helped to spread cultural artifacts further and faster than ever before. This is where pop culture and mass culture intersect, to the point of being almost synonymous with each other. In the year of our sea shanty TikTok 2021, that reference is already outdated. Some cultural theorists argue that a good distinction between the two in the present day is that mass culture is what the modern day bourgeoisie throws at us, and pop culture is the things that stick. So, when your ostracized red cap wearing uncle talks about the evils of mainstream media, he's not entirely talking out of his racist anus. There is a media that's mainstream, a dominant culture that attempts to reinforce the values that keeps those who built it in power. It just has nothing to do with changes in race, gender, and representation, and more to do with power structures and us versus the 0.1%. Your racist uncle has just woefully misread the situation by deciding that one side of the political spectrum is responsible, when in reality it's, it's sort of everyone, all of us who have any level of privilege, but especially those who have the time and energy to broadcast live to your racist uncle and steal his life savings. I mean, even, even QAnon is almost pop culture at this point, and ag again, that's, that's for another time. I can't, I can't be getting into that now. We need to go through Cultural Theory 101 before we do an episode about modern conspiracy theories and how they link to professional wrestling, because believe me, they do. So that's the historical background, but where does wrestling fall into all of this? 
given everything we've discussed about where low slash pop slash mass culture came from, is it safe to say that wrestling definitely is mass culture? Let's ignore the prejudicial term of low culture for just a second and look to sociologist Herbert Gans. Gans wrote a lot about the working classes, as well as people living in poverty in the United States. He wrote a deceptive article to his fellow intellectual elites, titled The Positive Functions of Poverty, and in it he highlighted the ways in which the affluent benefit from their being an impoverished class. He offered alternatives to having an impoverished class in society, but each and every one of these solutions resulted in slightly less money for those in power. So naturally, no one in power listened because they're, well, they're, they're, they're really greedy. He also wrote a book titled Popular Culture and High Culture, and he also escaped Nazi Germany and is still alive to this day according to Wikipedia. Hello, Mr. Gans. In Popular Culture and High Culture, Gans wrote, Low culture emphasizes morality, but limits itself to familial and individual problems and the values which apply to such problems. Low culture is content to depict traditional working class values, winning out over the temptation to give in to conflicting impulses and behavior patterns. That's a, that's a fake book. It's not the real thing. I got, I got the PDF. Stone Cold Steve Austin versus the McMahons is the first thing I think of when I hear those sentences in relation to professional wrestling. This feud defined the Attitude Era, a period of time between 1997 and 2002, when the WWE, then the WWF, took their programming in a more shocking, violent, and explicit direction. Stone Cold vs. The McMahons was the backbone of this period, with their core feud spanning from January of 98 to July of 99. Austin played the role of Blue Collar Brawler, the beer-drinking ass-kicker from Texas. Originally positioned as a heel, a bad guy, a villain on TV, the predominantly adolescent audience soon sided with Austin. Due to his relatability, outrageousness in the face of authority, and his heroic ability to ride Zambonis. I just wanted to say Zambonis. Stone Cold first got under McMahon's skin by ruining a big moment for the company. Ladies and gentlemen, in just a moment, we will make the biggest announcement ever in World Wrestling Federation history. On January 19th of 1998, Vince McMahon proudly welcomed Mike Tyson to the ring and stated he had a huge announcement in regards to Tyson and the upcoming WrestleMania event. The big announcement, and the announcement is that on March 29, at WrestleMania, in this very ring, yeah. Iron Mike Tyson. Well, However, before McMahon could make this announcement, Stone Cold interrupted. He antagonized both Tyson and McMahon, and arguably the biggest brawl in wrestling history took place between Mike Tyson and Stone Cold Steve Austin. I respect what you've done in the boxing world, but Jesus Christ, son, when you step in this ring, you're messing with Stone Cold Steve Austin, and that's something you don't do. But if you don't understand 
what I'm saying, I always got a little bit of sign language, so here's to you. Now, wrestling fans know this moment the way that Star Wars fans know the I am your father scene in Empire Strikes Back. And much like this moment, it's timeless and signified a high point for the genre. Now, from Vince McMahon's kayfabe, the storyline, the scripted events, perspective, Stone Cold just ruined the biggest announcement in WWE history. But in real life, McMahon was in the midst of a TV ratings battle with WCW as he attempted to recapture the popularity wrestling had in the mid-80s. So even from the perspective of smart fans, Austin stuck one to McMahon in a way that no other wrestler had done so before, by ruining a moment that McMahon so badly needed both in real life and kayfabe. This kickstarted a chain of events that led Stone Cold to become WWF champion, with Vince McMahon attempting to screw him at every turn. During this feud, Austin was offered bargains, money, and power, all in an attempt to get Austin away from the WWF championship. But being the working class hero he is, Austin refused and fought back every single time and remained on the side of the audience throughout this entire feud, as both he and his fans shared the common goal of wanting to see McMahon, a millionaire boss, suffer. Don't say one word, Vince. I'll knock your damn lights out too. If we look back now at what Gans said about popular culture, we see that in this particular storyline, working class values were depicted as winning out over those of the kayfabe bourgeoisie which means that these sorts of storylines in pro wrestling are most definitely popular culture. And we don't even need to be in the outrageous attitude era to see examples of this type of story. Daniel Bryan's rise to the main event of WrestleMania, where he used the power of the Yes Movement, a people's movement, to overcome the bluntly named authority. The next power structure stable in WWE absolutely needs to be called the bourgeoisie. We just need to go full on on the nose. Around this same time, the Rhodes family also clashed with the authority. This might not have worked with just Cody and Dustin involved as they are second generation wealthy, but their father, the late great Dusty Rhodes, was the quintessential common man, working hard with his hands. He's just a common man, working hard for the man. You, you get it, you get the idea. The American Dream represented the working class fan long before Stone Cold Steve Austin took his first swig of beer. And by having their father at ringside as a cultural signifier for the working man, this allowed Cody and Dustin to really establish themselves as working class heroes. If only for this story. We've we've seen your actions lately, Cody, and it's you're such a heel. Why do people cheer you? You're the you're the biggest villain in wrestling. Many other characters at the time entered into on-screen feuds with the authority, such as Roman Reigns, Dolph Ziggler, and Ryback. Remember him? But for various 
on-screen and backstage reasons, fans just didn't buy into them as representatives of working-class values, and so their feuds with established, entrenched power fell short of the mark and failed to capture audiences' imaginations. But when it worked with the authority, with Daniel Bryan and the Rhodes family, we once again witnessed working class values triumph over their corporate 0.1% overlords. I mean, look, even the original rise of Hulk Hogan in the mid-80s, while not a man-versus-machine narrative, still highlighted Reagan-era so-called working class values. Say your prayers, eat your vitamins, be a real American. They may sound like innocent enough comments from one leather-skinned Adonis to the children of a nation, but the subtext of those three instructions is arguably be obedient, grow strong, be obedient. And don't even get me started on hustle loyalty and respect. Look, looking at that, I think I could do a whole episode on Reaganomics and pro wrestling. Should we, should we add it to the schedule? Let's, let's add it to the schedule. In all of these situations, the authoritative peacock feathers are ruffled, but within the realm of culture as a form of escapism for the working classes. And where an authority figure isn't involved, working class values are still placed front and center. While Stone Cold did exactly what we wanted him to do, he acted as a surrogate rebel against those in power. He rebelled against his billionaire boss, so we don't have to rebel against ours. Or, put more explicitly, so we don't. This brings us to the depressing side of the mass culture discussion. The idea of the culture industry, and to learn about that, we're going to have to look to post-Second World War Germany and the Frankfurt School. Very briefly, just because it's history and we can all learn something, the Frankfurt School was founded in the interwar period by intellectuals, philosophers, and academics who were all dissatisfied by contemporary socio-economic systems available, such as capitalism, fascism, and communism. And they were right to think so, because all three suck. That's my bias showing. The Frankfurt theorists proposed that social theory at the time was inadequate for explaining the turbulent political factionalism and reactionary politics occurring in 20th century liberal capitalist societies. Does any of that sound familiar? I, I don't know about you, but these last several years... I've certainly felt a turbulent political factionalism and reactionary politics occurring in 21st century liberal capitalist societies. So maybe we can learn a thing or two, not everything, about our current age if we look back to thinkers who found themselves in similar positions almost a century ago. So members of the Frankfurt School sat around in rooms and theorized which ultimately is the core criticism of the Frankfurt School, and one that's important to remember going forward. They came across as cultural elites sat in their ivory towers. They had important things to say, but failed to adopt their own neo-Marxist ideologies by not reaching everyday workers with their new social theories. Or it could just be they were living in Nazi Germany and were terrified of the repercussions that could come from their teachings, or more likely a little of both of the above. Anyway, today we're just going to look at two critical theorists from the Frankfurt School. 
Theodore Adorno and Max Horkheimer, who fled Nazi Germany and moved to the United States. There they published a book entitled The Dialectic of Enlightenment, where they presented the idea that popular culture is akin to a factory producing standardized cultural goods, that media products are used to manipulate society and encourage passivity. They wrote the following. Again, not a real book. Culture today is infecting everything with sameness. Film, radio, and magazines form a system. Each branch of culture is in agreement within itself and are all in agreement together. Simply put, after a hard day of working in the fields, factory, or at-home office space, Participants of liberal capitalist societies are fatigued by the pressures of working to make someone else richer, so they crave easy escapism that won't be too intellectually challenging, as the man has already taken that brainpower. And no, the man in this situation isn't Becky Lynch. Don't blame Becky Lynch for the bourgeoisie. These forms of passive escapism as we know them today include sports, sitcoms, reality shows, cheap thrills, and non-stop action, and if you mix all of those together, you get the business of professional wrestling. So I don't think I need to sit here and make the argument that the boys from Frankfurt would have included our favorite form of culture as part of the culture industry. It definitely is. It should also once again be made clear that this isn't a bad thing, and the Frankfurt School, Marxist theory in general, and also me, right now, would never blame those who live under capitalist systems for consuming these kinds of cultural products. You shouldn't feel guilty about working hard and then wanting to kick back with something that's not going to be too challenging, like wrestling. That's literally the whole point, it's by design, and to blame the participants would be a failure to recognize the power structures in place. Hate the game, not the player. But it should also be noted that these dedicated thinkers fled Nazi Germany and the horrors that happened there, showed up in America, witnessed huge cultural institutions pumping out sludge to control the masses, and saw fascism taking place in both countries. What alarmed them is that one country had to have their propaganda force-fed, while the other guzzled it down willingly. The idea of the culture industry is like many industries within capitalism, in that it causes the problems it then charges you money to fix. Buy cigarettes, get cancer, pay for healthcare is the obvious example. But as a personal exercise you can do at home, and please message me with any results, Think about any product you purchase and then what causes you to need that product. Example number six may shock you. And in the present day, late stage capitalism supply and demand has now seeped into art and culture in ways that would have given Adorno and Horkheimer nightmares. In their time, they were worried that Hollywood movies were having a negative influence on society as they only portrayed one type of leading man, and that by doing so, everyone would consume the same homogenized culture and become obedient, similar versions of each other. And if you look at boomers, it, it, it kinda worked, didn't it? And when citizens of a capitalist society are the same, think the same, and do the same, it's that much easier to market products to them. Remember, that's the whole point here. That's the, that's the point of capitalism, to sell you shit. 
Whereas in our times, we're worried that we might not have access to as many original stories, perspectives, and backgrounds, because every single major cinema release is that one superhero movie they've been showing since 2010, but with a brand new skin. At best, even if we still assume that all culture is born out of the mind of a true artist and not a Disney boardroom, the culture industry certainly props up the efficient marketability of other products we don't need, but that efficient marketing departments tell us we do. So how does the culture industry and the ideas presented in the dialectic of enlightenment link to pro wrestling? Well, given that WWE are the Disney of their respective field, and have partnership with long-standing cultural industry machines such as Fox Sports and NBC Universal, it's pretty easy to draw comparisons. This is the mass culture element of popular culture and why the two are synonymous but with different meanings based on context. WWE are a mass culture content machine designed to keep you entertained, passive, and conforming in order to sell you products. Which absolutely doesn't mean that there aren't artists working hard on developing their craft of professional wrestling. And the most corporate person in wrestling is Vince McMahon, and even he has had to think creatively over decades about storylines and character arcs. Maybe not so much recently, but historically, yes. Art and good art at that can still be made within the system. It's not a bad thing, it's not a good thing, it's just the reality we live in. I'm not a bad guy. I'm not a good guy. I'm the guy. There are options, right? You want to move away from consuming as much WWE as possible because you start to realize while they're still in the business of storytelling, it's exactly that, a business of storytelling. First and foremost, it is the culture industry. Oh, what's this on the horizon? A shiny new company born out of the ashes of anger directed at WWE and an independent spirit to become something stronger together. Hello AEW, you shiny new toy, you beacon of hope in a homogenized wasteland of endless content consumption, and a billionaire's involved, and they also have a deal with Time Warner, a, another example of a culture industry. Okay, you're exactly the same, you just, you're just new. That's better, but still not ideal. Life is good, but it can be better. Look, obviously I'm not saying don't watch WWE or AEW or Impact or New Japan or Ring of Honor or the NWA because they have partnerships with entrenched cultural institutions. All of them showcase excellent athleticism, great storytelling, and provide us with entertainment at the end of a long day of retail work or whatever the fuck. But I promise you there is a better path, and it lies in folk culture, the kind of culture that the culture industry and the bourgeoisie have tried to quash for centuries now. The better path is this, and it's not alive and well at the moment due to the ongoing global pandemic. And if you're listening to this in the future, I'm sure you'll remember what I'm referring to there. Like... Like if you've if you've forgotten what happened in in 2020 and 21 then 
something worse must have happened to you as an individual because that's that it's it's been a lot the better path is of course independent wrestling your local indie your local upstart promotion of local talent if you're fortunate enough to live in a town or city with at least one the shop local equivalent of consuming wrestling and honestly you never know who you're going to see colloquially i have a great example from our local independent in colorado respect women's wrestling there we saw shotzi blackheart and abaddon a whole year before they signed with nxt and aew respectively and let me assure you they were still just as exciting to see as they are now they were breathtaking and for 15 dollars a ticket to be stood at ringside it it, it sure beats the supply and demand driven paywall the bigger companies keep their ringside seats behind sure we had to work to find the folk art the artisan independent but we were rewarded with stronger memories and a more intimate experience yeah i think that's i think that's all i need to say about folk culture it's it's the most valuable form of culture and one that you as a consumer within the system can help personally champion if we all worked together to collectively elevate folk culture over anything else that the culture industry produces, we'd find ourselves in a more guilt-free, equitable place. Okay, back to the Attitude Era and low culture now. The Attitude Era was steeped in the tenets of what early cultural theorists attributed to low culture. We're talking toilet humor, the burlesque, camp and kitsch styles even television itself if you can just about believe it before what's known as quality dramas such as twin peaks the sopranos and the wire if you were a fictional program on television you were considered low culture so i guess i could have opened with that and we'd be a hell of a lot closer to a conclusion by now sorry thanks for listening it seems crazy to suggest in this, the age of streaming, where series are lauded and we see compelling, often character-driven stories played out on our smallish screens at home, that not so long ago, the elites turned their trunks up at television. Now we live in an age where the Emmys have slightly more buzz and excitement than the Oscars, if only because more of us have watched and can empathize with the eight-part miniseries that tackles the effects of entrenched racism than the white savior narratives of films like Green Book. In the contemporary era, TV rules. Since the turn of the millennium, the bronze screen has been churning out hit after hit, original series after original series. Whereas film, while we still get a handful of uncut gems per year, its wealth comes from the repetitive adaptations, safe brands, franchises, and whatever else Disney's marketing department deems profitable. So when it comes to pro wrestling and the form they choose to present themselves in, we're in a bit of a muddle. Let's look at WWE again as they are the historical juggernaut other promotions are available. When Vince McMahon and the WWF began making national and cable TV deals at the end of the territory era, television was still viewed as almost bottom of the barrel culture. A place for soap operas, light entertainment, and the occasional primetime drama. So, ideal for bottom of the barrel professional wrestling. 
At the advent of WrestleMania, Vince McMahon helped establish the pay-per-view format that we know today. Well, actually, wrestling fans don't know it so well in a contemporary setting. But MMA, professional boxing, and even brand new Disney films still technically follow this pay-per-view model. It's also key to note that this model is less associated with the working classes and more with the middle classes, as you need a satellite hookup and an extra 50 bucks at the end of the month. Fast forward to the launch of the WWE Network in 2014, and McMahon once again evolved his company's content delivery system by joining the ranks of Netflix and Hulu in the streaming game. And in 2021, you can watch new original WWE content on all of the forms mentioned above, but also on YouTube and sometimes live on Twitter or Instagram, on many podcast platforms like the one you're listening to this on. And I think my slice of toast this morning even came with Xavier Woods versus Mustafa Ali burnt into the crust. The point is, by design, they are everywhere. Not just on broadcast cable television, and even if they were, audiences don't turn their noses up at TV the way they used to. In fact, the way quote-unquote high culture audiences used to look down on television is now the way they look down on podcasts, YouTube, or any number of digital platforms. And once again, that's a topic for a future episode. <laughs> I, can't, I can't believe I've got a catchphrase on episode one. It's, it's there now. So if TV and streaming are no longer viewed as automatic low culture, that means that pro wrestling as a genre has managed to ride the wave of success the small screen is currently surfing. If I had made this podcast episode in the mid 90s, I mean, first of all, I'd be a visionary of the medium, but crucially, this episode would have been really short. Just by virtue of being on a small screen at home, we could definitely say that pro wrestling is low culture. Sorry, mass culture. Sorry, pop culture. They're basically the same apart from when they're different, that's the way to remember that. It's intentionally confusing. And were we really in any kind of doubt? Sure, it's theatre in a round. Sure, it's combat ballet, partly choreographed with the precision and timing of any classical dance performance. Monologues and soliloquy are allowed to play out on screen for up to 10 minutes at a time, and stories can take years to have any kind of real payoff. All of these tenets of high culture. But with the subject matter and target audience being what and who they are, the form that borrows tenets from high culture is allowed to be broadcast to the masses by focusing on traditional aspects of popular culture. Both WWE and AEW wear this proudly on their sleeves. In the last several months alone, we've seen appearances from Snoop Dogg, Shaq, Bad Bunny, and that lasts from The Bachelorette, and a, a few others I'm probably forgetting. And in the past, they've worked with major pop culture icons, such as the aforementioned Mike Tyson, Muhammad Ali, and, dare I say it, disgraced former president, because he still is a former president, and the entire industry has always heavily flirted with pop culture, at least since Vince McMahon took over his father's company in the 80s. 
I'm sure wrestling historians could probably give some great examples of icons of pop culture getting involved with professional wrestling pre-McMahon, but around this time, with the birth of WrestleMania as a pop culture phenomenon within itself, we saw a massive upswing in pro wrestling branching out to other forms of culture. And look, on, on some level, it, it clearly worked. Even if you've never watched a professional wrestling match, you likely know certain words like WrestleMania and WWE. It can certainly be argued that without Vince McMahon's involvement, wrestling would have remained a cult carnival sideshow on the extreme fringes of modern culture, for better or worse. Love him, hate him, or correctly view him as this grey, mushy, polarising figure, Vince shone a spotlight onto wrestling that has influenced how promoters approach wrestling's relationship with popular culture. That's right, Vince McMahon influenced Tony Khan. Take that, people who think the Wednesday Night Wars are about company versus company. An interesting aspect of this niche pop culture juggernaut is that it now works both ways. Sure, it begs for non-wrestling pop culture icons to be involved with it, as a synergetic act of exposure, but as a machine in of itself, it's also produced pop culture icons in the form of The Rock and John Cena. There are most certainly other wrestlers with impressive resumes outside of the industry, but these two are undeniably household names and made their own names by using the platform the squared circle clearly allows. Yet despite the constant pop culture involvement, the endless guest hosts, the celebrity WrestleMania matches, and Snoop Dogg playing both sides like the legend he is, as we discussed at the top of the episode, pro wrestling still gets a certain kind of reaction when discussed casually around the world. And any wrestling fan who has ever tried to speak to their friends about wrestling knows exactly what I'm talking about. So let's, let's explore this idea with an example. Both involve a series of scripted events, a hard-working production crew, and character-driven narratives. It's much easier to talk to your friends about the latest episode of The Mandalorian than it is the latest episode of SmackDown. But why? They're both on reputable platforms in the form of Fox Sports and Disney. They're both forms of lower middle class escapism that chart roughly the same in terms of their target audience. And on both shows, you can witness Sasha Banks deliver a picture-perfect DDT. So why should you get a different reaction when discussing a strong pro-wrestling storyline that's captivated your interests compared to the latest character arc on The Mandalorian? Well, using many of the things we've discussed so far, I put it to you that pro-wrestling is harder to understand as a form from the get-go it's less tangible and therefore not as easy to digest instantaneously. You could put on a random episode of The Mandalorian and a new viewer would roughly understand what's going on. It looks like a Star Wars, so it's probably a Star Wars. Instantly, you're applying mass cultural knowledge to what you're seeing on screen. Whether it's Empire Strikes Back or Jar Jar Binks, you're familiar with aspects of this world, so you are grounded. 
With an episode of SmackDown, you have this nebulous set of characters, with one foot in and one foot out of reality, as well as so many questions about this unusual way of telling a highly emotive, character-driven set of stories. Just use 40 minutes in a spaceship like everyone else. The episode of The Mandalorian will have a self-contained story that feeds into a larger, Hero's Journey arc, played out over several episodes and eventually several seasons. Whereas with SmackDown, some stories are just getting started, some have been going on for weeks and other character arcs for well over a year. Look, I don't know if you've ever tried to introduce a friend to professional wrestling, but I always have to suppress this urge to explain the narrative and background of the business as a whole instead of just letting the story play out in front of them to see if they're truly captivated by Santina Morella versus Vicky Guerrero in a hog pen match. That's obviously a joke, I always show potential new fans, we LC. Star Wars fans can do the same, but it tends to involve the narrative background of characters from the expanded universe and not so much the behind-the-scenes choices and the performers as individuals at a meta level of commentary. If wrestling is mass culture, which we've pretty much agreed that it is, why is it not understood instantaneously in the same way as a Marvel film, a new pop song like WAP, or the latest multiplayer video game? All of the above involve scripted scenes, the body is something to be punched, kicked, or whapped, pretending to not understand what that means for a joke, and all can involve participation in a fandom or community. And this brings us to our conclusion for the episode, or the closest we'll get to a conclusion in a question that ultimately is unanswerable and highly subjective. After weeks of research and the journey we've now been on together throughout this episode, to answer the question, is wrestling low culture? I suggest to you that professional wrestling is high culture, wrapped up in a pop culture package and thrown into as many corners of entertainment as possible. Professional wrestling is Shakespearean theatre and Vince McMahon, for all of his corporate sins, has been our modern day bard. One of the defining characteristics of pop culture is that it's easily digested by the masses. As we discussed while talking about the culture industry and the Frankfurt School's criticisms of popular culture. But we clearly see when we try to show our peers wrestling that it's a form that's not so easily digested. In fact, many people vomit it back up immediately and decide, possibly rightfully, that it's not for them. Not only that, but it has a loyal, intense, hardcore group of fans, which one would normally associate with subcultures or media with cult status. A branch of culture I would love to get into more detail with, but let's, let's save, save it, it for, for a future, future episode. episode. Alright, geez, I'll wrap it up. Pro wrestling is either the black sheep of popular culture, or the very top of the mountain of cult media or it's both at the same time, or not quite either. That's not helpful, let me try that again. Pro wrestling is an epic amalgamation of both sports and entertainment, and I know old school wrestling fans are going to be pissed for this hot take, but Vince McMahon was right to brand the product as sports entertainment. 
it just helps explain it to a new friend much easier than pro wrestling. Just please think of the potential new fans, guys. Let's let's stop gatekeeping because how else are we going to get as many people as possible to fall in love with the greatest form of storytelling in the history of our species? Okay, that last sentence was definitely exaggeration, but we're working towards a narrative climax right now, so let me feel it. Pro wrestling is both pop culture and high culture. And in an age where we struggle to look up from the devices in our pocket, and if we do it's to look at the bigger screen on the wall, we surely have to reframe the definitions of high culture. Who goes to the opera anymore? Who attends the ballet? How many people are attending a classical recital that isn't the anniversary of some dead artist from over two centuries ago? Who are these people? And why are they the bourgeoisie? Wrestling is live performance art that demands your attention, but rewards you with participation like no other form. See, look, even as I come to my conclusion, I can't decide if it's high culture or low culture. It's both. It's definitely both. Pro wrestling is high culture. Pro wrestling is pop culture. Pro wrestling is... Well, it's everything. unfair for me to use rising strings to manipulate emotion like that, but that's the that's the name of the game. Stick around for this podcast journey to learn all of the tips and tricks the media uses to manipulate emotion. If you're hearing this, you made it to the end of the podcast, and I just want to thank you again for listening. I hope this last hour at least provided you the space to think about wrestling a little differently. And I'd really love to know what you think about literally anything that was mentioned here. You can write to me via email at wrestlingismedia at gmail.com or follow me on Twitter at MattWWriter and DM me. I, I love talking about this sort of thing on a, on a daily basis, much to the annoyance of the people around me. We can discuss high culture, mass culture, the Frankfurt School, just pro wrestling in general. Let me know your thoughts, feelings, opinions, corrections, suggestions or recommendations for future episodes. I have a few in mind for the first handful and then a, a big list of lots of potential topics to cover, but if you message me, get in touch with a, an area of cultural theory, media theory, anthropology that you think can link to professional wrestling, talk to me about it and that episode will be produced faster. I, I guarantee it. Currently, there's no way to financially support this project. I'm making this purely for the passion of doing so. But please, if you found any of the ideas discussed here at all interesting, share the episode with a fellow wrestling fan or anyone who you think might get a kick out of this. You could also give us a quick review on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, or any podcast review platform. I thought it was a solid four-star episode, but I have to believe in myself. You can, you can be as honest as you'd like. Throughout 2020, myself and some excellent collaborators produced another wrestling podcast series called The Kayfabe Crunch, 
It was a piece of scripted comedy satire that ran for a hundred episodes where we aimed to report on professional wrestling as though it were a real sport, as though they were real events that were happening. We played with a kayfabe of our own and at, at least half the episodes are worth checking out. I, I stand by about half of the episodes. One final time, thank you so much for listening to this episode. Please do subscribe to this feed. A new episode will be out whenever I can make one. I'm aiming for around one a month, so we'll see how that goes. But for now, share this episode with a friend, reach out about the ideas discussed, and remember, wrestling is everything.